Support for The Interchange comes from Trina Solar, a global leader in PV modules and smart energy solutions. Trina Solar is committed to delivering reliable and fully bankable solar technology to the entire world. Scientists at Trina Solar's State Key Laboratory of PV Science and Technology work to break new solar cell efficiency records year after year. In addition to groundbreaking R&D, Trina is transforming the solar industry with the launch of its Trina Pro all-in-one utility solution, the next major step forward for the sector. You can download a free guidebook for the Trina Pro solution in the show notes of this episode. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric Company. New technologies are unlocking innovative ways to solve power-related challenges. Conventional wired approaches may still be viable, but they're not always the best solution. Today, non-wires alternatives like microgrids can provide more sustainable, resilient, and economic ways to deliver reliable power, and they can be designed for your unique needs. SNC Electric Company has provided innovative power solutions for over 100 years. SNC helps utilities and commercial customers find the best solutions to meet their energy needs. Learn more at snc.com slash nwa. Green Tech Media Podcast. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Shale Khan, a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. And it is currently Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific, the morning after the election in the United States. And I have to tell you, uh, as a result of the last 16 hours or so, there's nothing that I want more than a good distraction. So that's what we're going to try to deliver today. We obviously will release this episode later than we are recording it, but I suspect a good distraction will be in the cards for some time to come. So... In that vein, we're going to try something new and hopefully fun. And before I describe what we're going to do, uh, let me describe who my guest is. Uh, I have with me Adam James. Adam is the chief of staff at Energy Impact Partners, so we work together on a daily basis. And uh, some of you may recognize Adam from a previous episode. We had him on to talk about the state of distributed energy resource aggregation about a year and a half ago, which I made the mistake since of telling Adam is our most popular episode ever, which is true, uh, and he hasn't stopped hounding me to come back on the show since then. So now is your time, Adam. Welcome. Thank you. And I think you might be confusing me hounding you with you begging me, but I understand the confusion. <laughs> uh, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Anyway. Right, right. So the idea for this show is uh, it's called Would I Lie to You? And it's based on a British game show, which apparently you watch, Adam? Yeah, I love this show. I love okay. this show. Well, I, I had never heard of it, but it's a pretty straightforward conceit. Basically, the way that it's going to work for today is each of us has come with three energy-related facts or stories. Any number of those three could be lies um, or could be true, but at least one of the three is is going to be a lie. They have to be clear lies so we can't just you know say like company was acquired for 51 million not for 50 million or something something dumb like that it has to be a clear lie um and each of us are going to take turns stating our fact or lie to each other the other person then has an opportunity to ask up to three follow-up questions 
uh, and they can ask until they are satisfied. If they want to just ask one follow-up question, that's fine. Uh, and then we're going to do three of those each. And at the end, um, each of us will guess what which of the other person's statements were truths and which ones were lies. And we'll see who's better at ferreting out each other's deception. Now, I will say, um, I feel like I have an advantage here because your job as chief of staff at Energy Impact Partners, I feel like, is to lie to me on a daily basis. And so... I feel like I'm well tuned to uh, to your lies. I guess that depends on how many of them you think you've uncovered over the last few years, <laughs> and and how many have managed to slip by you. I, I that's a somewhat scary point. I feel no, I feel good. I feel like I can tell. Um, did that's I, good. <laughs> I, I think coming into this with some confidence is good because I will admit that I've specifically crafted my lies because I actually decided to do all lies for this. So I specifically crafted my lies to be things that I felt like you would feel really confident about knowing the answer to. I, I like that you're pretending that all of your two truths and a lie are going to be three lies right at the outset. Don't don't think I don't see what you're doing there. Uh, did I miss anything important on on the rules here? No, I think that that basically covers it. All right. Well, let's do it then. Um, I think you should go first as the, the preeminent liar on this episode. Um, give me your first factor story. Okay. Well, I, I assume that many of your listeners know, Shale, about your personal kind of work history and that um, in your prior life, you ran GTM research and your job was being in the data all the time, especially on solar. But, you know, you, I know, prided yourself as well on kind of knowing a lot about data and the energy transition. I also know, and I assume most of your listeners have picked this up, that you're a little bit of a political junkie. And because we're on uh, an interesting day in politics, there's actually a lot that we don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's curious that future, future Adam will know things that current Adam does not about politics. But I thought that maybe for my first one, I would start with something that blends some of that political analysis with a little bit of data knowledge that you might think you have. So I'm going to give you a statement, and this statement is either true or false, and then I'll give you a little bit more detail and then let you ask your questions. Do you feel Do you feel prepared for this? Yeah. I mean, I feel like you're starting right in my strike zone, so this is going to be easy. Yeah. Yeah. This is the best way to demoralize you, though, is to start with one you that you really think you would know. So, all right. So I'm really interested in general in the politics and constituencies of renewable energy. One of the things I find interesting is that as you build solar solar projects, wind farms, you build constituencies also to support solar and wind farms. And it's one of the trends that as we've seen more deployment happen over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, that I think is getting more and more powerful. It's one of the things that uh, over the next 15 years, I think we'll look back and say that's that's one of the things that made a huge turning point. So here's here's what I did. I built a spreadsheet because my two favorite things are winning and spreadsheets. So I built a spreadsheet looking at how much solar and wind generation came from each state between 2010 and 2019. And this is based on EIA data, right? So it doesn't include distributed generation and others. And what I found is that states that currently have a Republican governor produced more solar and wind energy than states with Democratic governors. And I'll even give you a little bonus here, which is that this is true still, although by a finer margin, when you look at states that have a Republican governor and where both houses of their state legislature are controlled by Republicans. So I'll stop there. 
Hmm. Okay. What do you think? I, I, I do have follow-up questions here. First, can I do, okay, let me ask you a couple of clarifying questions. Okay. So this is over the period 2010 to 2019 in aggregate. Yes. How much generation was produced? That's going to be question number one. Are you sure you want that to be one of your questions? It's an, it's an important, it would be an important question because it's a different, there's a different answer if it were, you know, in 2019 versus over the entire decade. So yes, I'm, that's an important question. Okay. Okay. 4,458 terawatt hours. But my question was, the, the, the specific statement that you're making is that there was more solar and wind generation in states controlled by Republican governors in the period 2010 to 2019 in aggregate. Is that correct? Oh, no. Uh, that is as of today. And this is before we've actually seen the results of the election. And the reason I did that, instead of going back and looking at how much was produced uh, in those times where you had a Democrat or Republican-controlled legislature, which would kind of be interesting from another perspective, which is who has supported the deployment the most. But it's actually to say, if you took a snapshot today, who has larger constituencies for solar and wind? Um, you know, which, which states are those and which are actually producing the most? Okay, question number two. Okay. Do you have the breakdown of solar and wind? I do, yes. Can you just give me the, my, my question will be, can you give me the aggregate wind number and the aggregate solar number? Yes. So I want to take a second to recognize that I'm going to open up my spreadsheet and look at this, Shale, and I'm doing that because the statement is true. So I have all this data in front of me to be able to do this. <laughs> You're doing that because there is a real spreadsheet for you to look at. I've I, Look, you, it's easy for anybody to create a fake spreadsheet. I'm not impressed. Yeah, okay. So 568 terawatt hours came from solar. 3,889 terawatt hours came from wind. Got it. Okay. I, I know the, uh, the ground truth here. I know, I know whether this is true or false. We can move on. Wow. Only two questions in. Yeah. Didn't need that third one. you think you know the right answer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay. My turn? Your turn. Fire away. Okay. Fact. I'm going to give you a short fact here, but you obviously can uh, can follow up with, with whatever questions you'd like. The fact is that the world's tallest human-made structure is a solar generating facility in Western Australia. I, I will state my priors before I even begin asking questions, which I feel like there's no way that that's true. There has to be some apartment building in luxury apartment building in, you know, Riyadh that's taller than than that. I, I will give you, and this does not have to be one of your questions. I will say you're not you're not far off the mark. The previous tallest human made structure in the world was the Burj Khalifa. I'm I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that in Dubai. Wow. Okay. So question number one: Who developed that project? Great question. Uh, it was developed by a company called Hyperion Energy, which is based in Perth, in also in Western Australia, um, and interconnected to the Western Australia grid. Is it currently in operation? It is. In fact, it uh, generates, it's, I don't know the generation, but capacity-wise, it's a 200 megawatt plant. Hmm. So I was hoping to maybe trip you up by getting you to say a developer that I just knew wasn't a real 
name. So you did you did manage to pick a name that that I'm pretty sure is real. And I mean, this has to be a CSP project, which I find is that it is that a question? No, no. I'm just thinking out loud here and looking at your reactions. D- define CSP for our listeners, by the way. Concentrated solar photovoltaics. I hope I'm getting the acronym right now. So there's a no concentrated solar power. solar power. It's not photovoltaic. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. But also, I, well, okay. You should you decide what your last question is. How tall is it? It's a, almost exactly one kilometer high. Um, the Burj Khalifa, which was the previous record, was 829 meters high. So this one beat it by a little over 10%. I'll give you an additional bit of information because you didn't ask and it seems important. Um, so this is just a gift to you, which is it's not exactly concentrating solar power in the way that you're thinking about it. It is a solar updraft tower. Um, which if you recall was all the rage, there was, there were plans to build a bunch of these in the Mojave years ago as well. I do. Yeah. yeah. And so, so it's basically oh, for anybody who doesn't remember this weird wave, um, a decade ago when this was exciting to people, it's basically you build a, a effectively a greenhouse, um, sort of glass thing along just above the ground with room for air to come beneath it. And you build this one extremely tall tower, uh, and you're using the fact that heat rises to basically have the air flow in at the bottom of the greenhouse and then get sucked up through this tower, and then you spin a turbine up in the tower. Really, your your lie should have just been telling me that and then saying that that is a way to produce energy because <laughs> uh, it definitely ranks in my top uh, types of technologies that I just that that feel like it can't poss- it, it can't possibly be more effective to do that than something else. But okay. I, I I will note explicitly that I am not by any means stating as a fact that this is the most cost-effective way to produce power. I'm just noting that it exists. Um, okay, so you've you've finished with your questioning here. I have, I have, I've right. I've exhausted my three questions. Although I feel like I have fifty more now, but <laughs> I've exhausted what I'm allowed. Yep. Okay. All right. I will we'll come back to it then at the end. It's uh, your turn for number two. Okay. So my second lie is that geothermal, the birth of geothermal is related to the birth of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States of America. And our listeners can't see you, but you just gave a big eye roll to that. So that's, I think. Well, that's such a broad one. I'm going to give you a story. I'm going to give you a story because that statement's obviously too high level. So here's the story. So last week, this week maybe, there was a great piece in Vox about geothermal, which is one of the things I'm the most interested in. I, I get really excited when geothermal projects are successful. I get really excited when there are you know these kind of multiple days where people run without any um, fossil fuels because geothermal, I like the geothermal kind of has that base load. It's got a lot of things I like about it. So I was really interested in this piece. I read it and there was a little nugget in there about uh, just a sentence about where geothermal came from, which I didn't know. And so I wound up reading more about that and kind of digging into the history a bit. Uh, And so what's interesting about geothermal is that although it has been used for a while to do things like district hot water heating because you can kind of pump the hot water from the geysers into a town. The first time 
that geothermal was ever used to produce electricity was actually in the United States in 1902. And it was invented by Daniel Patterson of Grand Junction, Colorado. And what's interesting about Daniel Patterson is that he was the son of a very wealthy family. Um, His father, maybe a name you recognize, Thomas Patterson. And he was a little bit of a pariah. His dad wanted him to go into politics. He was really interested in science and business. Uh, The 1900s were obviously a period of time where electricity and kind of electrifying things was really starting to hit, you know, the, the, the big time. And he wound up creating the first geothermal generator in Colorado. And the first iteration of this only produced 10 kilowatts and lit, I think, something like four light bulbs. Uh, He got it up to 20 kilowatts the following year, but he never got to see his invention really get any traction because in 1905, he died Oregon Trail style by taking some medicine that was laced with mercury, which they thought would heal the illness that he had. In 1906, the year after, the federal government passed the Wiley Act, and guess who sponsored that bill? Thomas Patterson, the senator, and uh, Daniel Patterson's father, um, who was uh, very upset about his son's death and about the various um, folks who were roaming about the countryside selling these miracle cures, which turned out to actually hurt a lot of people. So I'll stop there. Okay, so the the to the extent that you're saying the the birth of geothermal is related to the birth of the FDA, it's just in that the guy you're saying the guy who invented geothermal energy, who produced the first geothermal generator, happened to die. His father happened to and happened to die in a way that his father probably had had some impact on his father that led him to lead to the birth of the FDA. Yes. Okay. Ooh, where what do I do with this? What do I do with you? Okay. Um. Uh, tell me about this 10 kilowatt version of a geothermal generator. Do you have any information on the mechanics of it or the design, anything like that? I do. Hold on one moment. This is where you're pretending to look something up on your computer. Yeah. What I actually want to just do, maybe I'll just show you a picture. Would that be helpful? You know, show me a picture. Mm-hmm. Sure. I kind of anticipated that you would have this question. All right. So, okay, Shale, t- I've put something up on the screen. Why don't you describe what you see? <laughs> okay, it's a black and white photo, you know, appears to be from that time period. It's a, a man in a top coat and a top hat uh, and a suit with a mustache looking uh, very proudly at a bunch of machinery, which includes a big tank about chest high, some gears, um, and, and some dials. So it's, it's a plausible, it's a plausible fake, uh, geothermal generator. Okay. All right. That's my question. Number one, question number two, uh, where, where it was in Grand Junction, Colorado. Is that where this geothermal generator was located? That's correct. It was in Grand Junction, Colorado, which if you noticed on the picture you just saw, you can actually see um, some of the terrain of Grand Junction in the background. Oh, I noticed that you picked a location where that was plausible. There's some hills in the background. Right. I, I photoshopped in Grand Junction Mountains behind because this one is definitely a lie. It's amazing that you learned Photoshop just for the purpose of this specific question that you figured that I would ask. Um, would you put that past me? Not, no, absolutely not. Um, 
Uh, you, you do look a little bit tired this morning. I wasn't going to say anything. Okay, final question is, uh, you say it powered four light bulbs. Can you go into a bit more detail on what that means? Can you clarify your question? What do you want to know about these light bulbs? Like, did it actually, was? did he connect it to four light bulbs? Was it on a circuit? Was it uh, connected to a grid? Like, what was it powering? Yes, it did power four light bulbs. I actually don't know the exact construction of that. So I'm going to be really gracious here and let you get another additional question. Okay. Um, Unless you're satisfied. Look, I mean, you, if you feel confident- I actually feel like I-, I You should move on. I, I feel like I know what I what I need to know here. Okay. I think I'm okay. Three questions is superfluous for me. If you're trying to get some mind okay. games going here by only asking you know, two questions each time and then saying you know the answer, it's not working. I'm not rattled. Even the two questions, I mean, they're really just for your benefit <laughs> to make it seem like I'm, I'm thinking. Um, okay, on to my number two. Fact number two, I, I presume that you are familiar with the Fire Festival? I am. Have you seen either or both of the documentaries about the Fire Festival? I have. I watched the Hulu one. Okay. They're both great. Um, for anyone who is not familiar, first of all, this is a great way to pass time in these stressful times. Go watch either or both of these documentaries. One's on Hulu, one's on Netflix. Um, the Fire Festival was an ill-fated luxury music festival that was supposed to take place in 2017, founded by this guy, Billy McFarland, who is currently in prison, as I understand it. Um, and it was supposed to be this like amazing big music festival with all these celebrities and influencers and a bunch of rich millennials paid a ton of money. Um, and it was a total disaster. I will. Um, can I add one thing, which is that um, he, he is in, in prison now because deceiving Ja Rule is a, is a federal crime. Right. Yeah. Ja Rule was also, uh, he was helping to promote the event. Um, and yeah, I actually heard Billy McFarland is in prison and I think he just got in trouble in prison because he started a podcast, which I've been meaning to listen to. It sounds right up my alley. Anyway, that the, the relevant fact here, the thing that, um, the thing that is not so well known about the fire festival and that was not it actually received a passing mention in the Netflix documentary, but only like one sentence, um, is that one of the pot, the very few positive things that came out of the fire festival was that in order to power the festival and to ensure that they actually had adequate power and reliability for what they were expecting was going to be like music acts throughout the day at various stages and things like that, they ended up developing um, a somewhat unique microgrid on the Bahamian island of Great Exuma, which is where the fire festival was scheduled to take place. Um, and that microgrid was actually the first op is the first operating microgrid on a Bahamian island still powers a, a, a small chunk of that island. Um, and there are now since then, I mean, uh, there's no guarantee this is related, but there are now plans to, to put sort of similarly designed microgrids on a couple of other Bahamian islands. Wow. That, that's your fact. Okay. That's a good one. I do have a prior here as well, which is that. I feel like that can't possibly be the first microgrid in the Bahamas. That's that's my prior, but I'll the first microgrid of its oh. scale. I mean, I guess it depends how you define microgrid. Like, I'm not including like household level okay. type of stuff. Hmm. This is a good one. Um, I'm also now I'm really curious about this podcast. Did he actually launch a podcast, or did he launch a podcast, get a lot of subscribers, and then not put any content out? Is this one of your three questions? No. 
No, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to spend a question on that. Okay. Well, my first question is a little open ended, but I feel like you owe me some of these details, frankly. So, when you say that it's somewhat unique, what about it do you feel like is somewhat unique? So I don't. It's probably not actually unique in this context, but you know, oftentimes, and you know this better than I do, um, sort of backup power on remote islands historically has been single source of power. So this one, what, what's interesting about it, to me at least, is that it is a combination of solar and batteries and diesel generation. Um, and they operate together and the diesel is used only minimally as backup when is necessary. So it's like sort of the optimal, maybe if you replace the diesel with LNG or something, it would be sort of the optimal like remote island microgrid design. Got it. So my second question, it it seems like, if I remember the documentary correctly, they, they had set up on this one specific part of the island. And I'm having a hard time remembering how much stuff exactly was around that. But, you know, part of my skepticism here is that if you built a microgrid just for that, that it would actually be able to be used elsewhere effectively. So I'm trying to think of the right way to kind of get at this, but um, maybe one way is what's the total amount of energy generated by the microgrid or power provided? What what metrics can you give me around what it actually supplies? So I can, here's what I can give you. The peak capacity of the microgrid is about three megawatts. Um, there's about two megawatts of solar 500 kilowatts of batteries and then diesel generate diesel backup for the rest. So that's the scale of the project. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. And I was going to say that seems like a lot, but there was a whole supposed to be a whole camp running there. Yeah. Which they would have needed power for. This is a good one. Okay. Second question who wait you've asked two just to be clear this is question three right third question (laughs) who owns it today oh that's an interesting question i will admit to not knowing the answer of who the current owner is can i give you who developed it which might be the current owner yes okay the developer is a company called lion electric um as far as I can tell, they're based in Florida, not in the Caribbean, but they appear to do a bunch of like energy projects throughout the Caribbean. I, but I'm not sure if they're the long-term owner or if they've sold it right. to somebody. Probably not. I suspect that they're not, but all right, this is a pretty good one. I, I'll admit that I started out thinking that this was definitely a lie. I might have been slowly convinced as we've talked that this is true, but okay, I'll, uh, we'll come back to it. Good. I'd like to leave you confused. This is the moment of the show where we pause to talk about our sponsors, the folks who bring you this show for free. We'll be back with more Shale and Adam. First, we're brought to you by Trina Solar. With utility-scale solar poised for major growth in coming years, stakeholders need to ensure they're optimizing their projects for better performance. As the next major step forward for the solar industry, Trina Solar introduced the Trina Pro utility solution to make things easier for project developers and EPCs. Trina combines Tier 1 modules, state-of-the-art trackers, and industry-leading inverters for one customized smart solution that improves energy gains while lowering the levelized cost of energy. 
The first all-in-one solar solution of its kind, Trina Pro increases project reliability, optimizes installation, and ensures overall project value. You can download the free Trina Pro Solution Guidebook and learn more about the benefits of the all-in-one solution in the show notes of this podcast. We're also brought to you by SNC Electric. Power-related challenges and opportunities are becoming more complex. Reliability concerns, rising energy costs, cybersecurity risks, they can jeopardize operations, while new technologies like electric vehicles and microgrids offer great potential. Solving these challenges requires careful consideration before making major investments. If you're a utility or commercial enterprise today, you're faced with a critical decision. Select a conventional wired approach or respond in a non-conventional way. Even with dedicated in-house resources, arriving at a conclusion can be uncertain. It's also time-consuming. You can evaluate these big decisions more efficiently and with more confidence by working with an experienced integrator like SNC Electric Company. SNC will be with you every step of the way, thoroughly working through your challenges and reviewing your energy needs to offer an expanded set of options developed specifically for you. Learn more at snc.com/nwa. Um, all right, last one from you, and then we will, and then I will go, and then we will move to the, to the answers. Okay. So, again, I'll give you kind of a big statement and then a little story. So, big statement. You've seen Iron Man, I assume. I have. So you know that nuclear fusion is the future. <laughs> I look. I didn't need to watch Iron Man to know that, but sure. Okay. All right. So I I will admit I am not somebody who knows a lot about nuclear. Power. I kind of got my cut my teeth in the world of renewables, um, and really only in the last year or so have started doing more research on nuclear to just better understand kind of a little bit of where it's at now, but also the part that's really interesting to me, which is where is it going? What's what's happening over the next ten years that might be interesting on the nuclear front? And I didn't know anything at all about fusion or the kind of small modular nuclear reactor world. So spend some time on nuclear fusion, and here's kind of my overall statement, which is that. This year, nuclear fusion actually made some important strides and is getting a lot of attention from very prominent world leaders, including Emmanuel Macron and Vladimir Putin. So I'll tell you a little story, give you some more facts here, and then see where you land on this. So I'm not going to claim that nuclear fusion is going to save the world, but um, this did go relatively overlooked this year because of COVID, that in the summer, uh, there was a big event held to kind of celebrate a milestone in nuclear fusion, which was very sparsely attended because of COVID. So it was just, you know, a gigantic empty hangar, a few seats scattered apart from each other, and then uh, a webcast in kind of from the president of France. So what were they celebrating? Uh, The ITER project, which is a joint venture between China, the EU, India, Japan, Korea, Russia, and the U.S., Uh, is dedicated to building this gigantic nuclear fusion plant. And it's kind of rare in that, unlike all other uh, projects like this, there's no budget for it at all. And uh, there's also no primary owner. So they're all equal partners in the venture. So this gigantic facility um, started construction in 2010, And it's taken a long time even just to kind of clear the ground and then get the preliminary structures built because it has to house about 6,000 miles of cable and also has all sorts of other buildings. There's 40 buildings around it. There's like a giant cooling chamber um, and, you know, lots of other things. So they've got all these buildings that they were building. 
And this summer, the milestone that they hit is that um, is towards what's called first plasma, which is the first test of this reactor, which is going to happen in 2025. They are now 70% of the way towards that goal of hitting first plasma and have begun one of the most important parts of this, which is building the actual machine. So they have the kind of structure that houses it, and they've begun to actually assemble all the different parts that will go into this gigantic nuclear fusion reactor. And uh, President Macron gave the introductory comments, and uh, some letters of congratulation were read from a lot of luminaries, including Vladimir Putin, at this event. I'll stop there. What are your questions? Okay, nuclear fusion. Um, all right, first question. Uh, you know, once this once this project is constructed, how how much capacity will it have? How big will it be? The test. Uh, I don't know the the end state, but the test is supposed to generate um, 500 megawatts, and it's for something like a thousand seconds. That's how they'll know it's working. Because nuclear fusion, remember, the whole point is that it can create more energy than it takes to produce it. So there's a burst of thermal energy. Got it. And the, what happened this year? So first plasma will be 2025. What is 2020? 2025, right. So what happened in 2020 is that they began building the machine. So it's taken this long to clear the land, build all the buildings around it. They got their licensing in 2012. And now they're working with, I think it's nine contractors to assemble the pieces uh, and a fun fact about the pieces is that the primary contributions of each country to this project are actually in the form of finished parts rather than uh, money. So each country is actually producing pieces of this and shipping it in. And can you name the nine countries or whatever it is again? Yes. China, the European Union, not a country, but a, a partner, India, Japan, Korea, Russia, and the United States. Okay. Got it. I asked my three questions that time. I didn't need them, but I did it. All right. My last one. Um, this is a very recent fact, in fact, which is because the data just came out for this, which is that for the first time ever in September of 2020, monthly new vehicle registrations in the European Union were more electric vehicles than gasoline vehicles. Wow. Okay. Question number one, was the overall number of registrations down? And if it was, I'm going to tack on a second question I'm going to make you answer to, which is just personally, do you think that that was because of COVID? Um, the answer is yes. Overall vehicle registrations were down 1.2% year over year. If, uh, if that's what you mean. I don't know what they were month over month. Um, and were they down because of COVID? I don't know the answer to that. Actually, with Europe, it's complicated. Um, I mean, on one hand, we're, right. you know, we're driving more than ever. And that actually is true in Europe, too. Like vehicle miles traveled is up overall. Um, and so as a result of COVID, because people are replacing public transit trips with with individual passenger trips. And at the same time, and I know in some European countries, there's been kind of a long-term secular trend away from individual car ownership. Like this has been true in Germany in particular. So I actually don't, I don't know the reason why, but they were, it was down slightly year over year. Yeah. Yeah. It seems a little complicated because I'm, I'm torn between thinking more people are staying home and not driving and saying more people are doing public transport, but it feels plausible that 
that overall registrations are down a little bit and we know that EVs are ticking up. All right, can you give me the number of new vehicle registrations for each of these two categories? I can. Okay, so electric vehicles, new registrations in September 2020 was 413,000 units, and that's up 139% year over year. Um, New vehicle registrations for gasoline-fueled vehicles was 382,000 units, um, and that's down 14% year over year. Okay. I don't think I need any more questions. All right. Before we... Before we go to the judging round, a mea culpa on my side. This is actually the second mispronunciation that I've had in recent weeks, but our editor, Ingrid, has just informed me that I should be calling it Bahamian, not Bahamian. That uh, should not you know, sway your judgment on the veracity of my statement, obviously. It does, it does indicate, though, that you're cracking under pressure here. <laughs> yeah, that's the first thing to go is my pronunciation. Okay. We are on to the judging round. So what we should do, I think, is uh, each of us should run through our three just briefly to repeat them, and then the other person should uh, should guess on each one, and and we'll do all of yours, and then we'll do all of mine. So quickly, what are you, what were your three again? So my three are number one, the generation from solar and wind power in states with Republican governors exceeds that of those in states with Democratic governors between 2010 and 2019. Okay, I believe that one to be true. You are correct. (sighs) And the follow-up to it is also true, which is that it is also true in places where the governor and both houses of the state legislature are controlled by Republicans. And your question about how much generation came from each source was a good one because the vast majority of that is wind and the vast majority of wind states are leaning red. And... The EIA data doesn't take into account distributed generation, meaning you didn't get the big solar bump from California that might have swayed this another direction. Yep, that was my that was my key question there. I figured I also figured the timing, if it's the entire period of twenty ten to twenty nineteen, we just didn't have that much solar at the beginning of the period. Wind tends to be in red states. So great. I'm one for one. Okay, what was your second one? Second one. Geothermal was related to the birth of the FDA. I believe this one to be false. You are correct. This one is false. Uh, Pieces of this story are true. Um, Thomas Patterson was a Colorado senator. The Wiley Act was passed. Uh, the years of these things are correct. But geothermal was not uh, first. The first geothermal electric plant was not in the United States. It was in Italy. I'll give you just another little fun fact, though, because I did actually go and find out about this because it was interesting. Uh, It was actually invented by a prince in Italy, Prince Conti. He's only kind of a pretend prince. He's from a royal family, but, you know, it's it's, uh, many, many years later. Um, It did start out at 10 kilowatts. That's true. It did power four light bulbs. That was true. It did double to 20 kilowatts the following year. That was also true. And it is actually still in operation today. Uh, it is owned by Enel Green Power. It's now 800 megawatts. They continue to expand on his little project. And unfortunately, the Conti family at that time, this 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 particular project and the, uh, the boric acid production that was happening around it wound up being um, in the middle of a lot of the 
debate, not really debates, but middle, in the middle of the fascists overtaking parts of Italy. And this family was a big supporter of Benito Mussolini, um, who helped uh, kind of bust some of the strikes that were happening and things like that at their at their facilities. This, so, wild. You should have just told the true story. I would have absolutely thought this was false, this like crazy Italian prince inventing geothermal. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you didn't because I got this one right, but... There was a missed opportunity for you. Okay, I'm two for two. What's your third one? Third one. Nuclear fusion is making some major strides and getting attention of world leaders. Okay, this one I'm struggling with a little bit. I think that it is false. I feel like I have heard of the ITER project, but I think either it actually is not about nuclear fusion. It's about like, it's like a large Hadron Collider type thing, or it's like something... I, I I can't tell you why, but this one rings false to me. This is a little embarrassing. I really thought I was going to totally crush you at this game, but... Oh, I, I got him. No, but this one's three? actually uh, true, so you were wrong on this one. Oh. <laughs> Cruel. So this one, I, I, I obviously, I won't, I won't make a ton of claims about knowing how meaningful it is that they've hit this particular milestone, but um, you can also look at pictures of what the kind of end product will look like it's unbelievable. It's this big, extremely complicated machine. And there's a great article in The New Yorker that I found, I think it was from a few years ago, about, about this project and about the politics of it and the personalities in it. And it's a great read. So definitely recommend going and reading a little more. Oh, I was so close. Okay. All right. Two for three. All right. Your turn to guess. Um, so reminder, first one, world's tallest human-made structure is a solar generating facility in Western Australia. I think this is false. And I think this is false. Let me let me explain why I think it's false and then you can you can you can tell me why I'm right. So the reason is is because I'm pretty sure that that tallest building in Dubai that I remember seeing that it was the tallest building in Dubai. Like I feel like I remember seeing that announcement. And I feel like that happened in a period of time that must have been after when all of these technologies were kind of the the big craze. So in my mind, the timeline is such that it can't possibly have been that this displaced that as the tallest as the tallest building in the world. That's an interesting rationale. Um, well, you are correct. It is not true. Um, basically, everything that I said is true except for that it never got built. There was a project company called Hyperion Energy that was trying to build a solar updraft tower in Western Australia. In fact, if you go on their website, they're still trying to build it. It is a 200 megawatt or would be a 200 megawatt project. It would have a one kilometer high tower uh, and it would be taller than the Burj Khalifa if it were constructed. They just never actually did it, which has generally been the story with all of these solar updraft tower projects. There's like a couple of demonstration projects, one in Australia, one small one in the Mojave, but you know, the, the, the technology never actually took off. I always thought it was super fascinating, though, just using the fact that he rises to build this like gigantic tower yeah. in the middle of the desert. This is also kind of a funny one for you and I to do because I was technically supposed to be the one who knew everything about Australian solar in this period of time when you were my boss in those dark, dark mm -hmm. days. So I, I was certain I was, I mean, knowing how bad you were at that job, I was, I was certain I was going to stump you on this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was a good one. Look, you you really you did sh you did you did shake me up a little bit on that one. So I'll 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 give credit where credits due that that um, I wasn't as confident in my answer as I was hoping I was going to be. But I'm glad I was right. All right, one for one. Number two, fire festival. Um, one of the 
small positive outcomes, the Fire Festival was a uh, unique, or I guess maybe not unique, but uh, interesting microgrid project that actually did get constructed and continues to power a Bahamian island. I think this is false. Yeah, you are right again. This one is just straight false. None of this is true. Nothing that was supposed to get built for the Fire Festival was actually built. Period. Yeah, <laughs> as far as I could tell, that was those are those are my two the two pieces of this that felt suspect to me. So one is that it just it still feels like a lot of power for what they were doing, and then the other one is that they couldn't that people were in tents, so there's no way that they had hooked up any of this stuff in time. Huh. Well, for what it's worth, I was thinking of this as being more to power like the stages and the concessions and all that kind of stuff than the tents. Also, they were luxury tents, or they were supposed to be luxury tents. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, you got it. And it happened really fast, the the kind of pu- pulling together of it, and the timelines on these projects feels like it would have taken longer than they could have had to do it. Right. So. Okay, two for two, this is it. Will we tie or will you win? Number three, for the first time ever in September 2020, the U- European Union uh, registered more electric vehicles and gasoline vehicles. I think this is true. I think this is true. I think that the growth in EVs and the kind of reduction in overall uh, registrations, this is shocking, but I feel like this one is true. It is indeed shocking. So shocking, in fact, that it is false. Um, it, Unbelievable. It's, it's, it is true, except if you repl- you have to replace gasoline vehicles with diesel vehicles. It is true that for the first time ever in September 2020, the European Union registered more diesel vehicle or sorry, more electric vehicles than diesel vehicles. Um, it has not yet surpassed gasoline vehicles. The uh, the percentages are like twenty five percent or so of new registrations were electric, twenty four percent were diesel, but gasoline is still close to fifty percent. That was a tricky one. That was a tricky one. Okay. So we tied. So we tied. Yeah. Worst possible outcome, if you ask me. All right. So we have prepared for this potential outcome, which is you have one more story to tell. So this is going to be a a do or die. Either uh, you tell me one more story. If I get it right, I win. If I get it wrong, you win. Correct. All right. Let's do it. Okay. Here we go. Iceland, as you know, is the home of the largest Bitcoin mining operations in the world because of low power prices, et cetera, et cetera. Recently, there was the largest Bitcoin heist in history, which was put together by a secretive mastermind called Mr. X and his compatriots Hoffy the Pink and Victor the Cutie to rob some of these Bitcoin mining operations. They stole a bunch of computers, and the police tried to track them down by following energy demand spikes in the country to see where they had stored these in warehouses and accidentally just wound up busting lots and lots of pot farmers instead and never recovered the computers. All right, this story is nonsense. This is absolutely false. This story is true. No! Really? Sudden death Victor pulling it out in the clutch. There's another fantastic article about this, which I'll send you. The person who perpetrated this also got away almost got away because in Iceland it's not a crime to break out of prison and they forgot to extend his custody so he actually just walked out the door and hopped on an airplane people are growing pot in Iceland well I mean they were up until the police started kicking their doors and looking for computers right damn Bitcoin ruined the whole thing mm-hmm. okay well look unlike 
some people, I will graciously concede the, the victory to you in this case. Congratulations on winning the first iteration of Would I Lie to You Energy Edition. It was a sneaky win, but a, but a win nonetheless. I, I think we can agree that the best man won, which is really, at the end of the day, the most important thing. And, and also that I've probably managed to retain my title as the one who can pull the most things over on you, both in my day job and in our, uh, in our weekend hours here. <laughs> You're obviously not that close with my wife, but um, <laughs> congratulations to you. Thank you for joining. I think we'll do this again at some point. So I will continue to think of truths and lies and you should do the same. Thanks everybody for listening. Hopefully this provided a brief period of respite from the crazy goings on in the world um once again i'm shale khan uh stephen lacy is out for the time being but we'll be back and this is the interchange conversations on the future of energy from green tech media